Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Japanese occupation shaped a generation of Koreans in many ways. There were, of course, collaborators. Japanese propaganda portrayed Korea and Japan as a kind of unified nation, a common people descended from common ancestors whose fates were finely aligned, and Japanese propaganda even called Korean a dialect of Japanese, which it's decidedly not. All the while, Korean did develop under Japan. There was plenty of industrialization and mechanization, even more so than during Korea's brief period of independence. And to this day, there are some Japanese apologists who will cite this, this industrial development under occupation, as a reason for why Japan essentially annexing and colonizing Korea as being not that bad. But come on, guys, that doesn't really make up for it. Anyway, because of things like the propaganda campaign and because of industrialization, there were a good amount of Koreans who sided with the occupying Japanese regime. Not a majority, but enough. And keep that in the back of your mind. They'll be important later on. But there was also plenty of resistance to Japanese rule, much of it appealing to Korean nationalism. And even while Japan tried to emphasize that really, Korea was just an extension of Japan, a kind of protrusion of Japan on the Eurasian landmass, plenty of Koreans started actively protesting, and a sort of new notion of Korean nationhood grew in the face of Japanese occupation. One of the big catalysts for this was that in January of 1919, the Emperor Gojong, who'd effectively been a prisoner of the Japanese for years, died. And he might have been poisoned by Japanese officials. He was only 66, and that's old, but it's not, you know, elderly. It's kind of weird when people die at 66, and it's not like the Japanese hadn't killed Korean royalty before. We still don't know how the last emperor of Korea met his end, but enough people believed that the Japanese regime had a hand in it that they were mad. And also, the emperor, prisoner though he was, was a symbol of Korean nationhood, and now he was gone, maybe snuffed out by the occupiers. That got people's attention. Something else that got people's attention were the headlines in 1919. During that year, self-determination and nationalism was all the rage. Over in Europe, World War I was over, and all of these various peoples that had been ruled over and occupied and ignored by monarchies and empires that had nothing to do with their particular national interest, well, they finally had an opportunity to talk about their particular national interest. And powers like Britain, France, and most prominently the United States with Woodrow Wilson and his 14 points were making headlines by saying that, you know, discrete groups of people who could be identified as a thing had the right to govern themselves. And plenty of Koreans said, hey, that sounds great. And by the way, that is the opposite of our experience right now. So on March 1st, several Korean students in Tokyo took to the street. And the March 1st movement, 
as it later came to be known, demanded independence for Korea and Koreans, and an end to Japanese oppression and occupation. They were asking for something that Korean had had for a little while, but had been taken away from them. Korean nationhood, Korean independence. This peninsula that for hundreds of years had been a kind of sub-kingdom of China, albeit a benign one, suddenly has people marching in the streets demanding to be an independent nation. As you can imagine, this did not go well. The crackdown from the Japanese authorities was swift and definitive, and in the ensuing riots, hundreds of people were killed, beaten, and arrested. The March 1st movement didn't bring about Korean independence, but it is a major touchstone in Korean nationalism and in the formation of an idea of a modern Korean nation. Now, you might be thinking, student protest, demands for freedom and equality, popular resistance to imperialist rule. Is this where Kim Il-sung comes in? This is a podcast series about North Korea. And hey, all that stuff sounds like it would make a pretty good origin story for a communist leader, right? Well, no. That is not where Kim Il-sung comes in. The March 1st movement was one aspect of Korean resistance to Japanese rule. Kim Il-sung was involved with another different aspect of Korean resistance to Japanese rule. He was part of a guerrilla fighting force just across the Yalu River in China, hitting back against the imperial occupiers. Or at least, trying to. Now, according to official North Korean propaganda, Kim Il-sung had the picture-perfect origins for a man of the people. Supposedly, he was born in 1912 to common farmers in the northern reaches of the Korean peninsula, living as ordinary and virtuous a life as one could possibly ask for. But that's not quite true. He was from the northern part of the Korean peninsula, but his parents and his family were not just common, ordinary, salt-of-the-earth types. Now, in reality, Kim Il-sung was born in 1912 as Kim Song-ju, and his parents were pretty middle class. His grandfather was a Presbyterian minister, and his father was an herbalist and something of a Christian missionary. The Kims, they were not wealthy, they were not like privileged landlords or anything like that, but still, the grandfather, the head of their family, he was the leader of a church, and at that time, Protestant was fairly big in the northern part of Korea. So, really, his granddad was occupying a position of leadership in his local community. Kim Il-sung, or rather Kim Song-ju, grew up as a, not a poor, common, honest dirt farmer. He was a preacher's kid. At some point, the Kims crossed the Yalu River to live in China, and we're not entirely sure why. Now, it could have been to escape the Japanese, and potential Japanese crackdowns on Christianity. That's possible. It could also have been because they were fleeing a local famine, or maybe they just felt like it. Maybe there was some other reason. It's impossible to know. But the upshot of this move was that the man who had grown up to become so intertwined with Korea spent a lot of his youth speaking what we now call Mandarin. Kim Il-sung, or rather Kim Song-ju, was less than 10 years old when his family headed out to China. The young Kim did eventually get involved in a guerrilla unit that was fighting the Japanese, but it was one led by the Chinese, not one that he organized or created. I'm going to read you a passage from a book called The Real North Korea, 
by a historian called Andrei Lankov. He's probably my favorite historian I've encountered researching this subject. He's Russian. He lives in Seoul, where he writes and teaches. And when he was growing up in the Soviet Union, he lived in Pyongyang as a graduate student, as an exchange student. So he has a sort of fascinating perspective on the regime, which, by the way, don't worry, he's totally opposed to it. He's not like some Russian apologist for communism or whatever. But this is what Lankov says about Kim Il-sung's early years. Quote, The North Korean narrative always played down the great leader's foreign connections. So it remained silent on his decades-long membership in the Chinese Communist Party and his position as a junior officer in what was essentially a Chinese guerrilla force. Instead, the official narrative insists that the great leader created a Korean guerrilla army at the age of 20. We should not be surprised, for if this narrative is to believed, he became the supreme leader of all Korean communists at the tender age of 14. Actually, until 1945, Kim Il-sung's military career was spent first under Chinese and then Soviet command, albeit usually in ethnic Korean units. Unquote. The young Kim's motivations, by the way, were probably more nationalistic than they were ideological. Um, throughout his life, and this is going to be a theme, uh, he has a sort of weird approach to communism. And honestly, one wonders if Kim Il-sung ever actually read Marx. Maybe he skimmed it. But the young Kim seems to be somebody who just wanted to strike back at the people who were occupying a country he only vaguely remembered from his childhood, and it just so happened to be communist forces who could help him out. Now, Kim's unit was apparently somewhat effective at punching back against the Japanese. They did take a small town that was just south of the Yalu River. They seized it from the Japanese and held that position for a few hours and then retreated. Now, later on, official North Korean propaganda would inflate Kim's exploits and characterize his victories against the Japanese as the most strategic and important parts of World War II, with his guerrilla fighting being really what sent the Japanese packing, never mind, you know, things like the Battle of Stalingrad, D-Day, or that whole thing with Hiroshima, never mind that, it was Kim Il-sung and his unit taking a small town for a couple of hours, yep, that's what made the difference. But something that would also happen is that later propaganda would change the location of their operations. It is a bad look for your future leader and national symbol to be part of foreign forces led by the Chinese and the Soviet Union, and to be operating outside of Korea. So later on, the Kim regime would insist that young Kim Il-sung was a leader of a secret band of Korean resistance fighters who were operating from a hidden base on Mount Paekdu, which rests on the border between North Korea and China. And Mount Paekdu is pretty culturally important in Korea. Think of it as kind of like Korea's Mount Fuji, sort of. So according to the North Korean regime, Kim Il-sung wasn't away from Korea for much of his youth. No, he was indeed on the peninsula incognito, carrying on a secret war against the Japanese, and oh, by the way, it was his work that won the war. But that's all later invention. Really, he was away for a long time. Not counting sorties and recon missions, and that one instance where he took a town just south of the Yalu, Kim Il-sung had been away from the Korean peninsula for 26 years when the war ended in 1945. His country had endured occupation, there had been a whole popular movement that sprang up. 
There had been massive amounts of industrial development, and he'd missed all of it. He'd spent much more time with the Chinese and Russian armed forces. And by that time, his speaking skills with his native language had degraded. When he returned to Korea in 1945, Kim Il-sung did not speak very good Korean. He'd had only eight years of formal education. He barely had an ideology other than nationalism. He'd never really cracked a book on Marx or ruling or any kind of political philosophy. At the end of the war, he was just one military commander among many. But he was about to become one of the longest ruling leaders of the 20th century. Next week, Kim Il-sung, Japanese collaborators, and Korean nationalists are going to combine in a strange and terrible way to create a new regime in the wake of World War II. As always, this podcast is 100% listener-supported. We couldn't do it without you. I mean that literally. I couldn't pay for things like hosting and research materials without you guys. And thank you all very much for keeping this operational. As always, search for the podcast on iTunes, give us ratings and reviews that helps other people find it, and also find me on social media. I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. (laughs) 